to our event on this afternoon on the trends of the 21st century global economy and the implications for Europe. Um, today's topic is a very big one, uh, and it has a very multiple facets. And that is why we have gathered a, very, a panel with a, a wealth of experience on both economic policy, governance, but also entrepreneurship. So let me briefly introduce you to our panel. On my right, Marco Butti, the Director General at DG ECFIN here at the European Commission in Brussels. On my extreme left, Michael Friedman, who is uh, Chairman of Letter One. It's an international investment business based in Luxembourg. And my immediate left, Christian Kasdorp, who is a Director of the Policy Studies Branch at the Economics Department of the ACD. Welcome to you all, and thank you very much for coming. Now, what I propose we do is we take turns to sort of tell a little bit of our story on this issue, our take on this issue, maybe for 10 minutes each. Uh, and then we'll have a first round of reactions before we open up the uh, discussion to, uh, to our audience. So uh, may I suggest, Mikhail, that you go first? Uh, you don't need slides, right? So, yeah. Uh, maybe a microphone, yeah. Yeah. It's all. Thank you. So first of all, thank you for chance to be here in so respectful institution like Brogio. It's a big honor for me. And um, actually, I recently I wrote an article which called Indigo Era. And the uh, article is, uh, to a certain extent, is uh, reflecting the topic which is in the title of your today's meeting, like Trends of uh, 21st Century. And uh, we just seated uh, in the lobby of the hotel today with my colleagues and discussing what's going on in different European countries. We started from definitely from Brexit, which is one of the most kind of actual topic for discussion when we discussed what's going on with the Italian referendum, when with the Polish government and Hungarian government and Spanish government, which is uh, facing new probably phase of election and so on. So and the overall you know, feeling that it's something strange uh, going on, and obviously American election. So, and uh, uh, it's a widespread feeling that it's something strange going on in the world. And you know, uh, definitely, I think we as a as a business people and as a you know just people would like to understand what's the reason behind all this unusual and strange things. Why? Uh, that, uh, and, and it's clear from the political development that's proven and uh, uh, well-conceived old values and beliefs shifting right now. And uh, definitely uh, we, we, we have to find the explanation of what's going on. And uh, I actually believe that, uh, you know, uh, we'll uh, changes we are facing is actually very global and tectonic, and to, uh, to to big part of that it's due to very revolutionary uh, and disruptive technological changes in the in the in the, in the economy and in, in, in the business. I think that uh, we are facing a new phase uh, of development of you know history of of, of mankind. And that's faced uh, uh, will be quite different from from the previous one. I think within uh, thousands of years of, of uh, history, uh, you know, the main treasury of main treasure of, 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 of any country was actual natural resources. <coughs> it's primarily you know concentrated on land, whether it was minerals 
or oil and gas or let's say uh, fertile territory or uh, suitable geographical situation of the certain uh, country. It's all benefit for the prosperity and success of, of, of national economy. And um, I would say uh, the same nature of, of territory was always kind of in a center of interest of any national uh, idea, I would say. And therefore, people were so desperate about preserving this territory from the, you know, uh, invasion from the from the kind of uh, kind of uh, conquering by 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 enemies. I think actually, uh, and and that's create a lot of fears in the in the uh, in the people's mind about uh, what's happened if certain resources will will not enough for everybody. And that was the reason probably behind the kind of ideas of zone of strategic interest, like for instance, U.S. always declared that certain you know areas of the geographical area was kind of really zone of uh, global strategic interest, or it was a definitely base for some anti-utopia movie, like you know Hollywood movie about shortage of oil and and fight, severe fight of the people for the, for the access to the fuel and so on. Because it was very spread, widely spread belief that actually in a certain period of time, once day, it will be not enough oil, for instance, or whatever. I think what's going on in, in, in the modern world is this idea is uh, steadily disappearing, actually. Uh, what's happened within in the last few years, and that's pretty obvious example for everybody who is in auditorium, that the, uh, especially in the business company and institution which was built on the idea of exploiting resources, steadily uh, were replaced by the institution which which we actually uh, made their success uh, on the idea of uh, using intellectual capacity. Uh, I, I think actually it was very bright, uh, bright um, name of these two type of uh, you know concept like people of wall and people of web. Within the last uh, five years, effectively the first uh, five largest company by market capitalization, all of them was actually uh, was re relatively recently created and based on idea of exploiting of, of intellectual and creative potential of the of the people who was uh, the founder of that company and um, the old leaders like Exxon, for instance, an oil company or any other company, were replaced by, by new one. I think that that means that these uh, simple simple things happen right now. That's the actually. Uh, speed of innovation become so high and uh, you know alternative technology become so powerful and efficient that there is no any more real shortage of natural resources i think that will impact enormously of the the whole process of globalization actually globalization within the last 50 years have seen as a kind of uh, way have to narrowing the differences, narrowing the gap between the development of first world country, developed country, and emerging market country. It was a powerful idea of convergence and so on. 
an idea of development of uh, emerging market uh, was pretty simple. So emerging market country first should exploit where uh, kind of access to natural resources or cheap labor, which also part of natural resources, right? When we should export these natural resources to get extra profit from that process, to invest this extra profit to building physical infrastructure, like, I don't know, roads, ports, bridges, you know, uh, you know, logistics center and so on. When uh, building this infrastructure, that become an attractive place for, for an investment. And therefore, it's create potentially middle class. And that was, the, that was the idea how emerging market could really become closer from point of view of, you know, level, you know, uh, level of income per capita to, 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 to develop country. What's going on right now, I think actually the idea of giving extra profits from, from, from uh, natural resources is uh, evaporating. Uh, as you know, all of you know, actually, industry, to a certain extent, return back to, to where domestic places and uh, natural resources like you know, minerals or, or any other resources not anymore became source of, become source of, of, of super profit. And therefore, and the, 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 actually it's not too much uh, engine for the really uh, fast developing of emerging market world. Recently I've read actually that um, survey of uh, World Bank and that's the first year was in the last couple of decades when the uh, growth of uh, emerging market probably will lower rather the growth of developed country in, in this year. And that's, uh, according to a survey, it's, it's, uh, it's ongoing future of, of, of the economical world. Uh, so what, and, and, and what, what's the reason why, why it's happened actually? It's, it's happened because developed world created infrastructure for enormously uh, fast uh, innovation process. This, the whole process built on a few, let's say, pillars. The first pillars is definitely talented people and system of education. Uh, that's probably not unique only for developed country. I think you know in, in, in other countries also a lot of talented people, and in principle education is become more accessible, uh, not just by establishing a good university in this country, but also because because of uh, some online education approach or whatever. So from that point, it's not too much differences. But uh, what is the really huge differences is the second pillar probably. And the second pillar is uh, not the physical infrastructure, which I mentioned for the emerging market, but rather kind of intellectual infrastructure, social infrastructure. What I mean? I mean that actually that's very sophisticated system which, which was developed within hundreds of years of uh, balanced power, rule of law, competition rights, and uh, competition uh, antitrust body and so on. It's actually uh, property rights, intellectual property rights, so on. The whole the sophisticated system uh, effectively developed within really a long period of time. And it's not, I mean, very often emerging market country, 
for instance, like China, been very successful in building physical infrastructure. We did it really very well and did it so successfully primarily because of centralized power. I, and I think for the time being, the whole this concept of centralized power for the building this social infrastructure would be not uh, very helpful and rather contradictive tradition and, and standard and beliefs and sometimes religion of the, of the, of the, of the country. So uh, I think uh, to repeat success of the of, 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 of fast growing of economy of emerging market in the forthcoming period of times for, for the many countries would be really a big challenge. I'm actually, maybe it's not a very common view, a bit more skeptical about future of China rather than many many you know, other uh, kind of uh, professionals. Because I think that despite of the great success we achieved, I think what we are facing in the future would be by far more challenging for them. Because the idea of uh, fair competition and full equivalence of all market players, it's not very well fit the traditional value of, of, of China as a, as a society, as a, as a culture. And what we've seen within the last couple of years in China, it's rather opposite process, more centralization of power, more tightening of control of everything and so on. So we, we, we've got a huge success in, in, you know, in, in many areas, especially in uh, areas of high tech for a few very dominant players. But I'm afraid that uh, appropriate competition position in that area would be quite difficult to build for them. You know, we, we probably could estimate, despite it sounds a bit strange, that Google have a strong competition in American market within, let's say, five or ten years. Because, you know, ten years ago nobody thought about Google it become so phenomenal, giant company as it is now. But we easily could imagine that it will somebody will change where, where dominance in the future. I think that would be quite difficult to imagine that somebody will challenge the dominance of uh, big giant Chinese company in their market, you know, in forthcoming years. So therefore, I actually believe that uh, distinction in a speed of growth between developed country and emerging market uh, will, will arise, will, will, will widening, the gap will widening. And that definitely will, will create a lot of different, uh, different uh, you know, uh, circumstances and, and events and consequences of, of events in the future. By the way, my, my, my deep belief that looking for what's going on in the United States, looking for how enormously uh, amount of support, uh, get an idea of isolation, which is definitely contradict uh, principle, fundamental values which is on the foundation of United States uh, society as a whole. Because United States society was built as the idea of immigration, right? So right now we've seen that, uh, you know, millions of people, very sizable part of society supporting idea of isolate uh, US from, from others. Actually, not just because of uh, some social um, feeling of disappointment or whatever, but to a certain extent, from my point of view, that's a signal that maybe in forthcoming future, uh, society which is developing so fastly like the United States will not need immigration anymore as a source of, of, of development of our economy. You know, simple example, we are investor in Uber. And Uber, by the way, was in a very short period of time became, became 
uh, you know, company with a market cap of like seventy billion dollars. So, primarily because of this, as I mentioned, social infrastructure, which I, I'm talking about, because this company was surrounded by the thousands and myriads of company uh, which provide for certain kind of services, web design, legal services, and competitive authority guarantee where kind of fast development and where we've been not threatening to be swallowed by the big competitors or so on. But what I'd like to say that, for instance, Uber just today launched uh, the first truck with a, a driverless, driverless truck actually with a, with a, with a uh, Budweiser beer, you know, and uh, uh, if it's become really a trend, which is, I think, inevitable, that means that within a uh, very short period of time, problem of, uh, of, of unemployment become really a kind of challenging for U.S. market as a whole. So I think a, a quite offensive comments of uh, a candidate for the president with regards to uh, immigrants is to a certain extent explained by the, this potential threat which is, which is, which is uh, ongoing. If I may, uh, there's very interesting challenges that are coming up. But what I take from your, from, your, from your intervention is that we're moving from sort of the, an era where the resources, the resources were the, sort of, the prime, of prime importance yeah. into an era where sort of intellectual capacity is going to be a So that raises challenges. Um, but it, can we come back to this in a minute? Because I think that's a very important issue, yep. this, what you call the indigo, the yep. indigo generation. I'm yep. sure there would be interesting things to come about. But can I bring this closer to, to Europe, if I may? Uh, I mean, and Marco, we, you have been part of this European edifice for a long time. How, mm. What's your take on this? I mean, this is a very sort of global perspective. What happens about Europe? What are more specific the challenges in Europe? Okay, I have, uh, I have a couple of slides yes. which I hope we can uh, put up. Um, okay, while uh, waiting for that, uh, here we are. Um, I, when I was invited for this uh, and uh, got such a huge title, I mean, this is a bit frightening. I said, yes. what, what, can, what can I say many things? Uh, and That's right. They, I got some indications from uh, Google on the questions, but I didn't like the questions. So I said, this, uh, I said to myself, okay, I, let's see what... Uh, <laughs> and when, um, often when we think about uh, the, you know, the future, I mean, the... Um, one natural thing is to, you know, to, to, to think back and, and, look, at, and look at history. Uh, in this case here, it's not so much uh, history in facts, but, um, but what we thought collectively, or at least if not collectively, they will tell me whether it's collective or not. I mean, at least myself, um, about two, two decades ago. So, uh, okay, uh, you, you remember Keynes, my early beliefs, uh, these are my early beliefs. Huh? <laughs> When, uh, uh, so the expectations that we had uh, uh, 20 years ago uh, about big, uh, big trends and big developments. Um, okay, we had, uh, I mean, the globalization phenomenon. Um, the, f the fear at the time was the um, race to the bottom. Uh, uh, essentially, of capital, you know, capital uh, uh, with uh, impacting then on uh, uh, redu uh, reduction of taxation, uh, tax revenues, uh, so putting under pressure the, um, the welfare systems. We didn't think so much about labor. Mm? So these were things was what uh, we thought at, at the beginning, 20 years ago or so. Second, uh, we thought about already, we started to talk about uh, skills bias, technological uh, progress and, and globalization. 
But we thought that this would create problems at the very bottom of the productivity scale. Uh, so that was the skill bias techn technological progress. So in a sense, displacing workers uh, un unskilled. We had the general faith in multilateral solutions. And multilateral solutions, I mean, the EU and the euro area at the time being uh, you know, a natural uh, uh, way of uh, you know, solving problems on a multilateral basis, including on the trade, uh, on the trade side. Um, we had also, and we were in the early years of, uh, of the euro, uh, that sharing sovereignty, and in particular sharing monetary sovereignty, would almost automatically bring convergence of social preferences and mutual trust. And finally, we thought that, OK, Europe does not have uh, a great growth engine, but we have, we have a welfare system which uh, at least protects the society and, and uh, is good for the stability, even though maybe uh, we pay uh, a bit in terms of, um, in terms of the growth uh, dynamism. Now, run through, fast forward to today, and see how wrong we were. I mean, globalization, uh, I mean, the, the impact now is more globalization, actually, of, uh, uh, call it labor, but, you know, the migration element. So the globalization of people being, uh, you know, much more uh, pressing than the globalization of capital. The second point is that uh, true that the skill bias technological progress has had an impact at the low end of the productivity scale, but those who have been impacted most by the combination of globalization and technological progress is actually in the middle class. You may have seen the famous uh, uh, elephant uh, uh, income distribution. So you have uh, over the 20 years, uh, 1988-2008, and I think if you extend with the data during the crisis period, it would become even more, um, even more evident. You have, uh, at the global level, the income distribution actually looking like an elephant, huh? so with a trunk. Huh? And who is uh, growing more? So that is the back, top back of the elephant. This is the China, India, the emerging economies. They have grown very, very fast. Who has been, le uh, and so emerging economies, and then the upper of the trunk uh, with, uh, with the, the top 1%. So the big, gain, uh, the big gains from globalization and technological progress to come emerging economies and the, the top 1%. Then you can slice it even 0 0.1, uh, even more. Uh, uh, and who has suffered uh, uh, from the, uh, in this environment? Those who have been left out, so sub-Saharan Africa, and those who have been left out of the, of the globalization movement, and basically the middle class in the, um, in the advanced economies. So that's the bottom of the trunk of the elephant. Mm. And there are, I think, uh, um, substantive uh, views on the current uh, wave of technological progress, which actually would accentuate even more this type of phenomenon of uh, this, uh, you know, squeezing of the middle class. Mm. Uh, and, and, and static uh, uh, income growth uh, for, uh, 
for the let's say blue and blue and, and white colors uh, in advanced uh, in advanced uh, uh, economies and this is uh, the fact that the, with the automation robotics etc it is much easier to displace uh, to display in a sense that kind of uh, of uh, work rather than the very manual things that one can uh, one can do which is uh, you know difficult to replaced by a robot. Uh, so one can expect that, you know, looking forward, you know, big tensions, for instance, in the banking system, uh, where there is uh, the automatization and, uh, and, um, and technological progress that brings, uh, you know, will bring, you know, dramatic impact on the, on the workforce uh, there. And be careful about something. These are not only the median income, it's, it's also, and very much so the median voter. That's why, um, I mean, the whole populist uh, tendency that you see now, and why uh, at the G20 in China uh, a month ago, um, the uh, Chinese presidency in chairing the, uh, the, the G20 summit made reference to the Gini coefficient uh, there, and why all the leaders, especially those advanced economies, uh, you know, jumped up and, and say, well, this inclu inclusiveness is the new uh, big uh, thing, is because uh, the median voter is affected. They don't care about the poor. You know, the, the poor, okay, is a social thing, but they, they, you don't win the elections with the poor. Uh, so it is obviously very important from a social fairness uh, model, but in terms of political incentives, uh, it's the median voter that counts. Right? It's the median voter that is, uh, has uh, this. Uh, so we got wrong uh, there on, uh, on the globalization. I mean, we had faith in multilateral uh, uh, solutions, and now we see you know, uh, actually a fragmentation and, and break uh, in trust uh, in that. We thought also that sharing sovereignty here coming to Europe, in particular, monetary sovereignty would bring more convergence in social and political preferences and mutual trust. One can uh, dispute that, uh, having seen the developments during the, during the crisis. And the final point is that Europe's uh, inclusive welfare model, the European social model, very much under pressure. So the feeling that uh, the, the current model that we have uh, does not protect uh, enough. So this is, uh, so I mean, uh, okay, my early beliefs, I got it badly wrong. Huh? Uh, so the, the, I did not, uh, I, I myself, I mean, it's a, it's a collective I, obviously, uh, not, not, uh, not a personal <laughs> one. So we share guilt. Um, so uh, what is happening now, what is happening now is, uh, uh, is uh, here, basically, I don't have to de describe very much because it's basically what I have uh, said uh, now. <laughs> You have uh, you know, low productivity, especially low total factor productivity growth. You have the demographic transition, uh, both in terms of uh, actual demography and the management uh, of the new citizens and the new, the new migration flows. Innovation patterns, uh, which is uh, much in line with what I have indicated uh, um, uh, before. So the need to, uh, let's say, exploit the potential of innovation while countering the potential uh, uh, negative uh, uh, impact. We have an issue rising inequality and static uh, um, income of the middle class. Of, uh, and then we have, uh, we have an, a risk of fragmentation um, and a widespread lack of trust in institutions. If you look at Eurobarometer, uh, we, uh, the European institutions suffer a lot. It is still 
better than national institutions. Uh, so, I mean, the widespread lack of trust is, uh, is really widespread. Uh, so it is um, between countries, between institutions and institutions, uh, uh, etc. Now, I put in the title here uh, six uh, trends. I mean, in the light of the experience uh, in the, on the previous slide, uh, maybe it's not so deep. Uh, I mean, in the sense that uh, we, maybe things uh, can evolve in a different way, but I think they can evolve in a different way because most of these elements, if not all, they really depend on policies. So I think we can affect each one of them and them uh, collectively. Now, um, I have insisted a lot on, uh, on the distributional issue because it's, uh, it's at the center of the attention uh, now. Inclusiveness, uh, income, wealth distribution, uh, you know, Piketty and Etali, the elephant that I have described uh, before, uh, etc. Now, coming to the EU, I think basically uh, you deal with the distributional issues at three levels, uh, in, in theory, uh, uh, in practice also. You, you can do it at the pre-market level. That is the issue of the endowment. You know, what you enter into life with, uh, into the labor market, uh, that can be in terms of uh, endowment as of financial resources, and endowment in terms of human capital. Uh, so human capital is very important uh, indeed. So this is a pre-market. Then what you have uh, at the market level when you uh, enter the, the labor market, then there is the post. Uh, market, which is what welfare tax and benefit system correct in terms of income uh, and wealth uh, and wealth distributions. Now, a couple of uh, considerations. First of all, uh, this is not in the slide, but think about uh, the um, difference between uh, uh, mainstream forces and populist parties. I think the main difference, I simplify a lot, so take it for uh, with the benefit of uh, of you know, further, uh, further uh, elaboration. Basically, the uh, mainstream parties, especially liberal democracies, they tend to in intervene on the first and the third, uh, and the third dimension. Mm -hmm. The Nordic countries with the flexicurity is quintessential uh, for that. So you have a lot of endowment, investment, human capital, education, uh, uh, innovation, etc., at the pre-market level, and then there is the uh, you know, very generous welfare system which correct uh, ex post, and you let the market do the job. Populist party, they intervene in the second. These are the various, the various types of walls. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, is the... And it is much easier to give uh, a very uh, convincing, uh, straightforward, easy to communicate uh, recipe when you, you intervene on the second dimension than when you intervene on the first and the third. So I think mainstream forces you know, liberal, in the liberal democracy, I think they have to rethink very substantially the first and the third dimension in order to make it more, uh, to make it more effective. Um, and here comes the distinction between what nation states do, so in the EU, and what the EU does. What we have done so far, basically, is with a single market, uh, but also with EMU, with the fiscal discipline rules, is that the EU slash euro area uh, intervene on terms of market liberalization, discipline, uh, integration. So they intervene in the second thing. And they have very little competences in the first and in the third. 
Member states, what they do instead, they, it is at the national level that you have this, uh, uh, these competencies here, in the first dimension and in the third dimension. Okay, my contention here is that this division of labor in which the EU, EU has the harsh face and the member states do the correcting of the, of the impact of what we do at the EU level, this distinction of levels of responsibility is not sustainable in the long term. I think it was sustainable in a pre-crisis period where we were the scapegoat uh, of uh, you know, having pushing for reforms, structural reforms, fiscal discipline, etc. I do not think it's sustainable politically looking forward. So there is an element here, I don't want to give the recipe, or, uh, uh, but I think we have to rethink the alignment of, of, of I think, our responsibilities. Uh, and, uh, and I think, so at a certain point in the future, and here is the dotted lines uh, that you see on the left-hand side, uh, I think what we can do in the pre-market phase, and here you have, the, okay, all you have the competency, okay, also digital. Digital single market, what we do via the EU budget, etc., and also on the social uh, side. Uh, but some reconciliation here has to be has to be done. Okay, this was my final okay. slide. Thank and you I very much. Uh, actually, one theme that runs through the, both of your interventions is the issue of distribution. Uh, Michael, you talked about the the, in, the infrastructure. You talked about the the, the way that we organize the. The, our, our, um, approach of our entrepreneurship, but you talked about the distribution of economic issues. Yeah. So I think this is actually crucial in this of the way that we move forward in terms of, uh, of uh, future welfare. What about policy? I don't know, uh, Christine, policy, your policy interventions, what can we do about these things? Yes. Yeah, um, indeed, I think, uh, in a sense, uh, my some slides fit very well to what has been said already. And indeed, we are, uh, when I got the questions, I looked, uh, what have we said? And, and what is our current state of the art? Uh, how does the European Union look like? What are the main features? And where are probably some of these elements which needs to be tackled if it comes uh, to a better future and whether the European Union is fit for the mega trends of this century and, and above them? So if the slides come up, uh, then I can immediately start. Um, and of course, I should mention nevertheless beforehand that what has been said by the two other speakers, I think this is very well setting a very good framework and I completely agree to a lot of that and especially important for these policy issues, what also Marco has said about the overarching framework where the EU probably also has to reframe a bit the, the paradigm of uh, say what you mentioned at the beginning, what about the shared sovereignty and in what issues? So what is the new federal state of the art? What are the public goods which probably need to be tackled more on different layers of a real European Union? I think this is very important, but I will not come back to that in my slides. <clears throat> so I looked a bit, what have we said? Um, I think looking a bit at uh, macro policies, Yes, uh, I think, uh, so something positive. I think uh, the European Union, the Eurozone, the European Central Bank, of course, has been more supportive uh, within monetary policy, macro policies, but nevertheless, we all know uh, the outcome uh, is much weaker than expected. And uh, of course, there is kind of a discussion whether they started too late and what have other uh, central banks done. I do not want to touch on this here. I just want to mention it. Uh, in several countries, finance is 
well ahead, but still, there are some spots where uh, financing for firms remains a big problem. And this is uh, bad in a, in, a, in a sense for the country which is concerned, but it's also bad for the uncertainty issue which is, which is within the whole union. And I think this is also what I will not tackle explicitly here. I think there is a, now after Brexit, there is a kind of a major underlying political uncertainty about the future. And this is why these discussions as here initiated by Bruegel uh, is very, very good to have them, and we should have them even more, because this, of course, feeds also into that problem. So financing is a big problem, and it affects, as we learned from the crisis, private businesses, banking system, and the public sector in the end, if not dealt well with the problems uh, on, the, on the lower levels. So, and investment, which is also an issue of demand, is still well below crisis levels, and the barriers to intra-EU labor mobility remain high. So probably I will skip that because anyway my slides are distributed, so I move immediately forward. Um, one area, <clears throat> of course, there is still large GDP gains could be expected uh, within the EU from structural reforms. Uh, we also have seen that especially some of the bigger countries uh, in the latest years have turned to be quite sluggish in implementing structural reforms. And I would immediately point to Germany and to France, uh, they could do much, much more. Uh, structural reforms in Germany now have been dead for 10 years. And I think this is not really good looking for the future. And France, structural reforms are still difficult to get at. So Germans did some, but 10 years ago, and France still struggling. Um, Italy, of course, very specific problems there. But again, just single market services could increase indeed EU GDP. And then also with a view to the digital economy to so-called industry 4.0, or how is it called in some countries. So the digital single market, of course, has a lot of chances. And indeed, the EU needs to take uh, these chances up and to make the best out of it. And then, of course, we have this very unfortunate discussion about more protectionism. Uh, free trade is really under under stress, and okay, maybe for some reason some of the trade apologetics have overlooked uh, that there are always some losers, and uh, maybe the discussion about TTIP and CETA could have been done different, seen from behind, but at least, uh, and I still hope CETA will fly now. So, uh, look here at the investment figures, uh, where you can clearly see um, where there is problems with real gross fixed capital formation, um, Italy especially looking bad, European Union so la la, and uh, Germany better, but not really super good, European Union, France, not that good, UK, there's a lot of uncertainty of course in all UK projections, I do not need to tell you that. So, then uh, here looking a bit uh, also with a view to the 3% deficit ceiling, so how do, do gov general government budget balances look like? And uh, of course, there is an issue uh, about fiscal stance and about fiscal space. So some countries which have fiscal space should have a more positive uh, fiscal, fiscal stance. And I think this is again, as we see it here at the OECD, true, especially for Germany. I know there is a bit of an overheating fear there. But I think if Germany overheats a bit, uh, I think this would not do a lot of harm 
indeed it could help others a lot if, of course, and this is uh, the, the also something we should mention here, I know some countries, of course, fear that monetary policy will react and then probably some other countries have even more problems uh, with uh, non-performing loans, as uh, you're seen on my next slide. So, uh, <clears throat> of course, this would be a problem and I already touched them at the beginning so I can go quicker here. So uh, what we have seen all in a while, uh, that especially in the first phase of the consolidation, uh, public investment has gone down. And as public investment, of course, is a kind of a qualifier uh, to bring in complementary private sector investment, I think this is very, very bad. That does not mean here I would be in a kind of a Stalinistic approach that everything in concrete or every new motorway is always good. There is a quality issue in public investment, and there is probably also a an issue whether it's an intelligent combination of investment and consumption expenditures to get really, really productive structure of public expenditure. So the composition does matter. Sometimes the public discussion for me is a bit too narrow focus on this, say, classical definition of investment. So probably we have to broaden that up. But what we've seen here is clearly not a good state of the art. So I think we need clever, high productive investment plus elements of uh, consumption expenditures to make it work. Yeah? A, a university will not work without a professor's, a lab will not work without the technicians and so on. So, but we, look, we need to look at that and countries really who could do it really need to support uh, this and uh, so why say a black zero is so important for a big uh, central European country, I don't understand. So, um, what is also a very interesting feature, you may have a look here, because what we also see, there is a kind of a persistent gap in ICT capital stock between Europe and the US, and uh, this is a bit worrying. Of course, you can say the US supercycle uh, is coming to an end, but this is not really closing. So, I think it's a bit narrower uh, if you compare 2000 and 2014, but there's not much there. And uh, so, as digitalization facilitates diffusion, of innovative ideas and so the digital economy is important for the productivity riddle we, have, we all face and you know the main issue of the OECD is that you see a lot of high productivity firms on the productivity frontier but there are more and more laggards on the average firm and this is especially true for the services sector and this is most worrying. Also for the future of the European Union where this is especially valid. So. Also an issue we should mention, and this is again a bit reflecting also Marco's issue, where probably national sovereignty is not that well taken. So this is about the regulatory burdens, and I think, and this is also true for a lot of investment programs, uh, there is a regulatory burden, there is a, an issue of the planning laws, even if you want to do, say, cross-country big investment projects, let's say they are high quality or uh, you have a problem with the planning laws, uh, with the regulatory business you have to be done. And uh, as you know from the building of some very important energy grids, also for a more green European Union, you may take 15 or 20 years. And there is also some evidence that in some countries, and again I have a recent study seen uh, in Germany, there is a, a task force working on that, and I guess in other countries of the OECD they are also working there. There you can clearly see that there is a lot of money, but it's not the people are the, the administrations are simply not able to spend it. Yeah? And of course, this is also an issue which needs, uh, which needs uh, 
some, some, some pan-European probably push. Network sectors are fragmented, just to show it to you here, seen, uh, if you look at the differences in electric electricity prices. And here you also see a nice little chart my team did about e-commerce, and here you clearly see there's also not so much ongoing uh, across the borders. Main, the main things are still, remain, the main e-commerce still remains domestic. So also an issue clearly to be tackled. Last but not least, uh, we have still, okay, you can say in the European Union there is still a language problem, but labor market mobility is quite low. If you look at these figures, compare uh, the EU between 28 countries here and the United States, Again, abstain from the language. Nevertheless, this is not a good ratio. So, and what also was mentioned, uh, an important issue, which is also now very important with the high inflow of migrants and refugees in some countries. Uh, you see, the, the main force here is all the, or a lot of countries could use migration, refugee inflow, if cleverly mentioned, uh, to create, say, um, more productivity and higher potential growth in the future. But Integration in the labor market is key, quick integration. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, the, the more easy you can, there's a recognition of professional qualifications across the European Union, but also for those coming in, this is, this is crucial. And I know that, for instance, the OECD is working there on some quick fix skill tests uh, also. So, and uh, I'm just finished, so. Uh, Thank you very much, that was uh, very comprehensive. <laughs> There's a lot of things to pick on, but what I would like to do uh, first is perhaps give you a chance to uh, interact and sort of comment on what you have heard. And then I would like to certainly open the floor because I'm sure that our audience will have a lot of questions. Mikhail, since you went first, is there something quickly that you want to react to of the things that have been said? I know that we've taken a very European perspective on this side, but you can imagine this is, of course, very relevant to us. But how much does your, sort of your, your thoughts on sort of the, uh, the Indigo generation and all these prerequisites that we need sort of fit into the European uh, story? Yeah, I think actually that the European um, market and the European uh, economical uh, dimension actually uh, quite well fit to the future development, despite of all uh, difficulties and problems which uh, uh, facing uh, uh, you know European, common European market, I think that in principle uh, all fundamental infrastructural uh, kind of uh, foundation is there. I mean, uh, Europe it's the uh, you know the the, the 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 source of of rule of law of idea of rule of law. It's source of idea of balanced power of independent court system of independent media and so on. And all this element is just uh, irrevocable element of the future breakthrough. And of course, it would be very different, probably, uh, speed of development in different parts of Europe. But uh, definitely, as a principle, as a kind of uh, basic things, it's, it's, it's one of the most uh, kind of suitable place for the fast growing in the future. And I'm sure that, of course, it's a lot of uh, Ongoing question with regards to you know uh, rules for for the common European market and common European policy in the future. But I think uh, fundamentally uh, Europe going in the right direction. I think it's maybe from at least from my point of view, it's too much socialism here. You know, as a kind of uh, representative of the country where the socialism was in pure form, <laughs> communism. Uh, so therefore, I'm a bit less kind of. Uh, tolerant towards socialism. So I think actually 
it's necessary to, to overcome it to a certain extent, and definitely in a modest form. But I think generally uh, European are are uh, in a good shape. But if I may ask, I mean, we saw uh, we saw here Christian's intervention, and I'm sure Marco will agree with that. We, we have very little um, uh, progress with structural reforms, and uh, we're quite reluctant to reform. And, and given some of the challenges that you actually described at the beginning, quite clearly the need for reform is there. But if you were to pick, uh, and you would advise Europeans to reform in one sense, what sense would that be? I think at the end of the day, I mean, uh, it's always a, a trade-off between the calm and uh, stable life of the people and uh, life with the changes and fast growing. You know, that's always sure. trade-off. It always would be a beneficiary of that and victims of that. Sort of I think the, kind of, uh, the main, the main uh, direction from my point of view is just to promote, uh, promote competition as a good thing. You know, right now what we've seen that mm. effectively Europeans looking for increasing of the competition as a bad thing. Look for this <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, treaty with Canada or with the United States. There's a lot of criticism towards that. But in the end of the day, uh, I mean, definitely some, you know, group of people will suffer from that. But in general, Europeans will kind of gain from that, right? Because they will get more better product for better price, for, you know, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, it seems to me general mood in Europe uh, on that a bit less positive towards uh, competition. So we're looking for competition as a source of threat, potential threat for uh, stability and for our life. I think it is very important to promote the competition as a kind of very positive things and to, 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 uh, to, to communicate appropriately that despite of certain problems which inevitably will arise from competition. In general term, that's 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 okay. Well, that's no, good. thank you. That's very clear. So, any quick thoughts on this, Margot? No, I mean, I am. I agree with uh, uh, what you said now, and I agree also with uh, uh, Christian's uh, indication on uh, of what to do. Um, I think we have to, whilst keeping the bar on uh, uh, more competition, spurring you know innovation and uh, new opportunities, uh, the uh, the structural reforms uh, certainly. I think we have to re rethink the how. Uh, I think not so much the what, but the how, yes. I don't think we can uh, push through uh, structural reforms uh, uh, neither by force nor by stealth. Uh, I think the issue here of uh, um, uh, presenting the structural reforms and the changes in a way that is uh, that uh, uh, stresses the opportunities and takes care of the downsides uh, and the possible short-term impacts, I think, is, uh, is important. I mean, the, uh, so this, uh, I think, requires uh, rethinking, I think, very substantially the kind of uh, welfare system that we have. If you want, uh, um, if you want uh, uh, people to jump to new opportunities, uh, uh, Move uh, freely from one to uh, to uh, to, uh, to another job and to take up. Uh, then we, you need to have the welfare system which allows that, mm? because otherwise uh, you 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 enter into a churning which is a very negative, uh, very negative. Instead, you have to have a welfare which accompany. And uh, as we discussed before, I think this would require very very substantial um, uh, rethinking. I think it will also require continue 
to do and accelerate the repair of the financial systems in Europe. Because the, the migration of resources, so the transfer resources from old to new activities, will require financial systems to work properly. Eh? And here, uh, we have a system which is overbanked uh, in Europe. And for these type of activities, which are potentially very profitable, but also very risky, banks are not good at, at financing. Neither because of attitude uh, nor because of regulations. Uh. So these are, let's say, low material collateral activities. Uh. So for this, you need, uh, you need other types of financing. So that's why it's so, it is so important also from this viewpoint to proceed fast on the capital markets union uh, in Europe because that is a capital markets, that's what, uh, where the financing of these new activities uh, uh, come. So I think there is, um, uh, I think keeping the bar certainly uh, on what needs to be done, but I think there is a need to rethink the, as I said, the how uh, yeah. in, a, in a substantial way. Yes. And then, Christian, any last thoughts before we open no, up the... Uh... One very last remark. I think yes. what Marco said is, is exactly right. And I think uh, to make Europe being, a, say, an inclusive growth machine again, I think it would need to redefine a bit how we're doing things on these areas I mentioned, and again, where we do them. And I think uh, after all these years, I think we should really not be shy to integrate more where it's really feasible. And again, I have always seen uh, the diversity of the European countries and also the diversity of the economic models, which differ from Nordics to Central to South. I think this has a value in itself, and I think we need not to, say, harmonize everything. So I think there is a lot of room on the lower levels that the creativity, the spirits in each country are not harmed. But there are some common issues, and we should really be keen on looking where are these common issues also as a kind of an assistance scheme to national schemes, or as a kind of a real European public good where we could do much more. It's already mentioned, it's about defense, it's about foreign representation. I think this is the last layer I would like to mention. And this is so awkward also with Brexit, sorry to come back to that, <laughs> because I think this is really not the time doing things alone. I think this is the time doing things also in cooperation with others. And the European Union still is a very good tool in doing so. And this voice of Europe also then in the global governance, where the OECD also tries to take care of, uh, I think this, this is important. There are global problems and they have to be solved on a global level, European level, and then trickling down, and you can then say in the end all business is somewhere local, and we should also respect that. Well, thank you very much. That's a very positive note. But let's, let's collect a few questions and then we can come back to the panel. Uh, first question there, the gentleman, please. Yes, he's coming. Well, thanks a lot for this very uh, excellent uh, exposés. Yeah. Well, uh, my I would say probably we have to give one message to the general public, namely that globalization is going on and will even accelerate. Over the last two days, what did I read in the press? One, there was a listing of the firms, the largest firms in the world with respect to capitalization on the stock exchanges. Google, Apple, and the three others were also of that kind. Firms that do not have much of physical capital, physical assets, but they do have, they do have, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, well, uh, uh, let's say intellectual capital. Okay. Whether they will keep 
there is capitalization at that level. Sometimes I doubt a little bit, you know, but anyhow, that's another story. The second point I read in the press, not later than yesterday, are is an artic article in, the, in Le Monde with respect to the ongoing uh, waves of uh, mergers and acquisitions amongst the largest firms already in the world, uh, amongst others in the United States. If I put that together, that's really two aspects of globalization. And it brings in also the word multinational, about which in the uh, popular press so much stupid things are being said today. But there is a problem, no doubt there is a problem. These large firms can, amongst other things, also fairly easily evade or avoid taxation. And that's to quite light an extent because they get a favorable treatment proposed by various countries. Now, uh, we, what we need is in this new wave of globalization, and you add to that also the uh, tremendous advances or changes that are going to be uh, effectuated by, by the digitalization, okay, yeah, uh, the... Uh, we must have more of global governance in the world. Whether one likes it or not, it's not easy, but the G20 is more appropriate, I think, than many other things, were it only to bring in China. Okay, uh, that would be my, 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 my message. Thank you. There's a question here, please, and there. Just the lady here at the front. My name is Bernadette Segol. I come from the trade union movement. I spent my life in the European trade union movement. And um, trade union movement is still believing in, in Europe. Um, but I'm really um, fascinated but also really frightened by the enormous gap between what I hear in this room and what I have experienced uh, during my professional life with the people I uh, represented, it, it's an enormous gap. People would not understand, would not believe what you are saying. And certainly, um, they would doubt the benefits of competition because they have seen the results of competition. They would doubt the benefit of the structural reforms. I mean, if you, if you speak to the British workers who are working with contract, uh, you know, no, uh, no our contract, and you tell them structural reform is good, well, they, they won't believe it. Uh, I think uh, if you tell people trade is good, you might have very nice figures. Uh, and you do have very nice figures, but they, they don't see it like that. They, they, they have seen that unemployment has gone up and that their working condition has gone down, that their uh, welfare coverage has gone down. So you can't just say it's good. You, you can't. You, maybe you believe it, that's fine, you are experts and uh, I'm not, uh, but you, you can't just go on like that. Because then the, the whole thing will blow up, including the, uh, the, European, the European Union. So yeah. I think that you know, slowing down a little bit and, and trying to understand what these people are experiencing 
would only do us, I'm not saying you, uh, would do us good. I'm really, really preoccupied by that gap because I, I just don't think you're going to convince, to convince the majority of the people, those who are voting in various countries, with, the, uh, with this argument. I'm not saying they are entirely wrong. Some of them I disagree with, but that's not the point. But you are not reaching the people who are going to allow us to have this uh, type of society. Thank you very much for this. So let's take one more question, and then we come back to the panel. Yes. Yes, Luis Martínez Arevalo from La Actualidad Económica. Uh, Mr. Castro uh, mentioned uh, the need to imp closer yeah. the need to uh, deepen the, the uh, liberalization of services within Europe of the, uh, the the Bolkenstein Directive within Europe. Uh, I think this is a very well taken point. Uh, uh, what happens nowadays is is that you send uh, your worker somewhere, let's say a country in northern Europe, to do something, paint a bridge or or, or lay some cables or something. And you don't know exactly how that how that works. You don't know where you have to unionize your workers. You don't know how they get a, a permit to work there. Nobody really knows how that works. And this is something which uh, needs further clarification in order uh, to work properly. But actually, the point is, is uh, really refers to everything. I mean, uh, politicians love this sort of drama. You sign the Volkenstein Directive. You sign an agreement with Canada. You sign an agreement with the US. But then the details are left there uh, hanging around. And, and the, the, the efficiency of the whole thing uh, takes much, much, very, very long to, 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 to work okay. out. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we've seen the need for more globalization, at least at the governor's level. But also, you know, are there tangible benefits, and are we able to communicate those benefits to, uh, to the? Yes, no. I mean, uh, thanks for the various for the various comments. I mean, on the first one, uh, I um, I agree. I, I notice uh, that um, the uh, big firms uh, you are talking about the U.S. Uh, we do not have um, so many of these um, uh, big companies uh, um, in uh, in Europe. Um, I also agree that uh, this poses uh, definitely new challenges for governance. Uh, a, a taxation is one uh, is one of them. Actually, um, the G20, um, uh, since uh, which has been revitalized during the crisis in 2008, uh, um, has I mean taxation has been one of the success stories. Uh, clearly, work. Uh, is not mission accomplished, uh, obviously, but there has been quite a lot of work, and actually the coordination of the OECD has been uh, uh, essential on uh, uh, on this. And uh, Europe, uh, the European Commission, uh, they are uh, representing the representing the Union as well as uh, other countries uh, in Europe have been at the forefront of pushing uh, for this. But so I think the new taxation agenda is is really key. And uh, okay, we have seen recent events also that the commissioner has not been shy in taking its responsibility in, in pretty, let's say, courageous, uh, uh, courageous decision, but more needs to be, um, uh, to be done. Um, uh, no, I understand uh, your, uh, your points. I think I thought that um, uh, in my presentation maybe I have not been uh, explicit uh, uh, enough, but 
the issue of uh, uh, taking into account the impact of globalization and technological progress uh, in terms of the distribution of resources, both wealth and income, on, the jo on job security, the issue of inclusiveness and more generally, I think had to be factored in much more. So I think that was my message. So I, if you did not perceive that, I, I, it's my fault. I did, uh, I did. Uh, um, and there was actually, uh, and the slides will be distributed, so you will see there. Uh, I jumped uh, because I didn't, uh, because of lack of time. Uh, one of my, uh, one was my slide, and uh, and which was on, uh, let's say, inverting the trends that I that you had seen in the in the, in the various balls uh, uh, there. And there I had one on uh, uh, structural reform 2.0, uh, uh, and the issue here is precisely to take away from uh, the structural reforms which have been uh, uh, you know, perceived and in, in, in de facto also uh, um, you know, in, in terms of impact uh, have, uh, you know, have had unwelcome social consequences in the first uh, phase at least and in other, in, in other cases for more than, for more, more than, uh, than an initial period um, and make and put it together in, in uh, let's say, in a framework, in, in a strategy which emphasizes the fact that uh, we have to have reforms to boost productivity. I think it's a very, very strong accent on, on human capital, that's what I had, uh, you find in my slides, on inclusiveness and the combination with this uh, new uh, welfare system that I talked about before, which would uh, very much accompany uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the adaptation of the, uh, of the labor markets. Uh, is this possible, if you go back to one of my slides, by, by you know, putting obstacles uh, in the intermediate phase, uh, which is, the, let's say, the working of the markets? I think it has to be well-tempered, certainly, uh, with good rules, but uh, starting to, uh, you know, to, to do things which, uh, which do not allow the you know the market to function there, which with no spurring of innovation, uh, etc. I think at the end of the day, they uh, would lead to more uh, negative consequences than uh, than uh, than what is uh, uh, sought. Um, mm. uh, so I think we have to intervene a lot and very convincingly with a definitely a new policy uh, in which national and EU competencies, uh, you know, merge together in an in a more synergetic way, uh, or in terms of the pre-market, so the, all the endowment issue, especially on human capital, but also on uh, you know also on taxation uh, issues, and then work a lot on the post-market to, to make sure that you have uh, efficient welfare systems uh, to correct uh, possible market inequalities. Um, I think um, doing otherwise a concentrated on the in, in the middle ground there, I think is an easy, it's a very easy message. I understand it's more uh, easy to communicate to um, and to push than uh, the, a more complex uh, one. But usually here uh, is one of these typical cases in which uh, to complex problem they have clear, uh, straightforward, and wrong responses. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
Could you share some 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 bits and pieces? I think uh, I share uh, what was what was mentioned here. Of course, that there is an issue of uh, say multinational global big firms, and uh, I think this is an issue which is probably a bit overlooked. If we talk about global governance, you have other things in mind, and BEPS, the tax issue, is one of them. But of course, the regulatory arbitrage uh, is a problem, and of course, we need something on a global level level because you can also see uh, that a lot of say big, uh, say, IT firms buying startups, and it's not always because they want to make them big. Sometimes it's also to just close the shop and, and shelter their technology. So there is a competitiveness issue also on a global level, and you mentioned that, say so, which is broader in, embedded in the rule of law thing, which we really clearly need. So I think there is a global issue, a global governance issue of the multinational firm. On the, on the second issue, I would uh, compliment uh, Marco, and I, I also I think we are looking a lot, uh, if we talk about structural reforms uh, right now, we are not looking just at the growth effect or something. We will also look uh, at what would this mean, for instance, for the inclusiveness, and we have a bit looked uh, after a new methodology, which is not entirely new, but we try to elaborate it a bit, which can clearly show us or indicate where a certain structural reform will affect the top levels, uh, the poor part of the income distribution curve, or the middle class. And so we can monitor a bit whether, for instance, you see just a growth in the, in, in the top segment, in the top decile, or whether the middle class is polarized so that there are more poor and more into the top, and the middle class is shrinking. And I think this is another very fundamental source of growth, and this is what we clearly see in all our models, is a prospering, well-established middle class as the elephant in the emerging markets show. There is a political issue. You made that whether this is sustainable from the political system, but so be it. Two other little things. Uh, what is very important also with a view to inclusiveness is sometimes, first of all, to package reforms in a sense you have to see what is the macroeconomic situation. Yeah, if there is huge unemployment, it's probably not very clever to do a labor market reform which increases the job churn yeah, without and then the welfare system in the back. Anyway, we have to think about that. So you should look which reforms you do at what time in a cycle. And of course, there is also a good issue of reform packages, for instance, between labor market reforms and product market reforms. Yeah, because uh, they feed into each other and we have quite good empirical results that packages are at least in 50% of all cases that are good for growth and inclusiveness. So we have good empirical evidence for, for every second package. Problem is countries don't do packages. So they miss a package. They do just this. And of course, if you do it without a clever package, you may have distributional consequences which are creating a problem, and then you need to mend afterwards with redistributional policy. And this is the last thing we are looking at. We're just right now starting a new research project about the redistributive capacity of tax transfer systems. And maybe there is an issue that due to, say, certain secular trends, mega trends again, this effectiveness of our, say, tax transfer systems is somehow diluted, and the policy issue would be how can we enhance them again to bring them back to their old effectiveness, and this is where also Marco pointed at his intro, introductory statement that you can't do this without backing up of a good welfare functioning system, which really has an effective redistributional scheme. Again, of course, without hopefully not hampering growth. So, Michael, how can we 
how can we promote the good side of competition without, <laughs> without you know, the... Yeah, I think my colleagues, who is my, by far more professional, economical and political, let's say, part, uh, told a lot about this. I just would like to make a very short comment. So first of all, the problem about big firm, I think that uh, what's the reason why we be became a big? It's probably the one reason, that the only reason that they doing something more efficiently, more successfully, more cheaper, rather than anybody else, right? So that's that means big firm. It's it's a, actually providing a good good things for their customer, right? And otherwise, we could not become big, right? So I think actually, of course, it's a question of transparency. It's a question of uh, administration uh, of, of taxation, but in the end of the day, big firm is not able, from my point of view. It's a question of fair competition and so on, but generally I think that's uh, important driving force for the f success in the future. And I have a lot of cooperation to what you mentioned as a kind of poor people who suffer from competition and from, uh, you know, uh, kind of approaching new player on the market. But you know what? I actually lived almost 30 years of my life in a country which, from that point of view, was almost ideal. There is no competition there. It was zero unemployment, just zero. And it was absolutely equal salary for everybody in the huge territory. And for the 300 million people, we have the same salary, it doesn't matter whether we worked efficiently or useless. You know, we have the same salary, but it's finished. You know what? It's finished with the empty shelf, and people fight to buy food, fight practically. You know, and when it, competition started, and within a very short period of time, shelf was full of, of product. You know, we probably forgot this time. You don't. I mean, European didn't remember this time, but we lived in this time. And we, we knew how it was. So believe me, in the end of the day, competition is a huge benefit of, of any society. It's a question of how to regulate this competition. Exactly. It's a question of smart politicians who will softening problem of, of people who suffer from that. But in the end of the day, it's, it's a, the only engine for the further success. It's like to you know, to prohibit the competition, it's like the idea to prohibit cars because sometimes cars killing somebody on the street, right? You know, that's inevitable. Then that's bad. It's necessary to regulate better, you know, uh, you know, traffic. But anyway, we need cars. Well, and the, uh, let's see some more questions for the for the floor. Yes, please. Uh, can we have the microphone, please? Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Kohei Noda from the Japanese uh, mission based here in Brussels. Uh, I think uh, DG uh, Buti has um, earlier mentioned about the distribution of uh, competencies uh, between the European Union and uh, national authorities. And uh, I want you to um, elaborate on, on that a little bit further. Um, I think uh, there is, uh, at this very moment still, uh, an ongoing discussion, uh, both in terms of the, uh, uh, within the Belgian government and Belgian government and the uh, EU. 
regarding the CETA, of course. And uh, so, uh, um, of course, yeah, I'm not quite sure how this whole dynamics plays out in the end of the day. Uh, although my greatest interest, of course, is the uh, is this potential uh, impact on the Japan EU uh, um, negotiation on the uh, on the trade policies. Uh, so uh, my question there is that the, uh, uh, well, first and foremost, it is a Belgian problem, of course, but it's partially also a European problem. And uh, I was quite surprised to hear the statement um, published by the head of the uh, um, SND, which is a socialist party, uh, saying that the, uh, um, well, uh, I'm not sure if I can quote him uh, precisely, but the, uh, if there is a mechanism uh, that can hostage 5 million European citizens um, just by uh, just by the uh, the sake of um, uh, one uh, one of the regions uh, within a country, within a certain member country, then there is a cl clearly uh, some kind of problem involved. So uh, I would like to ask you uh, whether uh, you think that this whole CETA issue uh, would um, inevitably uh, lead the European Union to reconsider the whole distribution of competences or, or um, add a further push to this um, already existing um, discussion on the uh, redistribution of competences of the uh, European Union. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Very good question. And uh, my question here? And I think we'll leave it at that, actually. Yeah, a comment and a question, James Watson, Business Europe. As, I, mean, I enjoyed Marco's exposition, and particularly looking back 20 years. Uh, ju just a comment, though. I mean, if we look certainly to the mid to the mid. 2000s, 2006 for example, Stiglitz came out with his book Why Globalization Works with the famous observation around US median incomes, household incomes not having risen for the last 30 years. At a similar time we were getting the whole um, hollowing out literature, um, lovely and lousy jobs for example at a similar time in the, in, that came out in the UK observing that hollowing out. So my question is therefore, you know, economists have kind of been talking about these things for at least the last 10 years. The question is, in a sense, why has it taken so long to, to come up to the political agenda? Is there something economists have been doing wrong? Is that how politics works? Or perhaps it's specific to the, you know, we were worried about the crisis or it's hidden by growth in the, in the, in the EU in the run-up to the boom. But is there something we can learn from that? Okay, let's then uh, give the, the floor back to the, uh, to the panel for some last comments. I don't know, Marco, would you like to go first? Uh, I can go first, but yeah. I, uh, I'm not going to answer your question. It was very good, but uh, I think <laughs> okay. uh, the, the situation yes. is uh, okay. sufficiently, uh, let's say, complicated not to add any, any, other, uh, any other comments on that uh, on the front. I, my, my only hope is that... Uh, uh, the situation is unblocked, as Christian said at the beginning, uh, and we, uh, let's see, an agreement is uh, is found uh, um, uh, on this. A lot of political capital has gone, and I think, uh, which by the way was uh, one of the things that at the at the summit also uh, of the G20, as I mentioned before, uh, which was uh, hailed as um, uh, 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 an important. Uh, uh, agreement of the new generation uh, of tr or trade agreements. Um, so let's hope things are sorted. Why has it taken uh, uh, so long? Um, I think it has taken so long because um, in order to get to the, let's say, political, to get to the political uh, level and to gain the, the, the political attention, uh, politicians need to feel, to feel it on their own skin. Uh, so I think is um, it has taken the rise of the populist movements uh, in uh, in many European countries, uh, and now we see also on the other <coughs> side of the of the Atlantic very much, um, which felt that uh, which they 
what they realized what I tried to, to say at the very beginning, namely that uh, the, uh, those who do not see an, uh, an increase in their income uh, is uh, not only at the bottom end, but also is, uh, is the middle class. And it took a while to make the link between the fact that uh, these middle class here were the median voter. And the median voter uh, is, uh, uh, clearly challenges the job of, uh, of the present governments uh, very, uh, uh, very directly. So I think this has been one, uh, one of the reasons. To be fair, um, in uh, the rise of populism, is not on, this is not the only, uh, the only factor. And overall, we have done uh, in Europe uh, considerably better than the US on, the, on, the, uh, on income distribution. Uh, we published uh, um, in the, I think it was in the spring um, forecast document, uh, uh, we had an analysis of income distribution and the effect. We see that we show there that clearly uh, Europe is not immune from uh, these tendencies, but we are still uh, uh, doing uh, um, considerably better than uh, than the U.S. So the problem there is, uh, you know, traditionally much more uh, much more acute. Mm -hmm. So I think this is uh, one of the reasons. I think. Thank you, Marco. Christian, some final thoughts on this. Uh, the final thought I would have uh, Stiglitz was mentioned already, and I think there is this famous new book that is a bit of a doomsday book uh, that, that Europe will fail and uh, it can only abolish the euro or make a south euro and a north euro. Uh, I am I'm, I'm not that pessimistic. I think it's true that uh, Europe has a kind of a crisis, but let's not forget about what has already been reached. And this is not all about negative things. So by far, again, I think we all here agreed that there is a lot of other things to look at, to redo the federal design, to enhance it, uh, but to say that uh, this has uh, is been, a, I don't know, a failure of, of a generation, I think this is simply not true. I think on the contrary, I think Europe still has big chances to play a big role in the global governance of the future. And also it can have this joint European public goods and it can keep also some preferences or most of the preferences on a on a down, on a, on, a, on a more narrower level, on regions, on states. So I think there's not really, I think Brexit really sparked the debate a bit in the direction uh, that this is all a sclerotic thing. And I, I, I must say, I completely disagree with that. I completely disagree with Stiglitz here. But of course, we have to make it work. And this is the old famous sentence, uh, never let a good crisis uh, go unused. And I think this is really now for reinventing Europe a bit and not about abolishing it. Thank you very much for this positive message. And Michael, a last thought? No, I, unfortunately, I'm not a big professional to analyze what was done mistakenly within the last 20 years. So probably I think that the only hope that the whole mistake which was made in the past uh, could be a good platform for avoiding the uh, same mistake in the future. Uh, uh, and uh, I think, again, yeah, I would agree with what uh, colleague saying that despite of all this problem with uh, all this approach like consensus approach in Europe which is definitely very challenging and so on, Europe could overcome the, all these difficulties to, and to use their advantage, which is a huge advantage, and uh, go forward uh, in the first row of uh, beneficiary of the of this future success. 
So, you know, that's, that's the only one I could add. Okay. Thank you very much. What I take from here is that you, we want the benefits of competition, but with a much more human face, and then the question is how. Okay, well, let's leave it at that, given, uh, given the time. Thank you all very much for coming, and also you for coming. Please join me in appreciating the panel. <laughs>